Welcome to the Michael Rothstein Show live from Regents Field, Ann Arbor's True Sports Bar at 204 Main Street in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Regents Field also happens to be the home of this podcast. Come on down and check out a future episode taping live on Tuesday nights. I'm your host, ESPN reporter and world traveler, Michael Rothstein. And the Michael Rothstein Show is a podcast where we discuss the Detroit Lions, the NFL, and whatever else is going on in the world of football. If you happen to notice from a couple of days ago, we've added a post-game podcast now, even though the Lions season is close to over. So what used to be the first section of this show every week will now be available to you even sooner, pretty much right after the game. It also means we're gonna, going to keep this a lot more interview-focused going forward with some thoughts that I'll have at the end and, and maybe occasionally at the beginning. Hope you enjoy learning from our two guests tonight former Lions safety Glover Quinn and Cleveland.com reporter Doug Marie, who can explain the fascination of potential draft, top draft pick Chase Young. And while we're on the topic of Chase Young really quick, just a couple of words at the top. The Lions inadvertently have placed themselves in a good position for a top five pick come next spring. ESPN's Football Power Index, otherwise known as FPI, has the Lions with a little better than a 50% shot at a top five pick. And if the teams ahead of them in the draft race, particularly the Giants, Washington, and Miami, keep fighting on the field as they have been, it's entirely possible Detroit could find itself with the number three or number four pick this spring. And that could be enough to land Chase Young, particularly if they're ahead of the Giants in Washington, since Miami and Cincinnati probably need quarterbacks. So over the last three weeks of the season, while the players and coaches are going to be fighting for wins themselves, it's okay as a fan to be okay with a loss because the more losses Detroit has at this time of year with where they are, the better chance they can land a true star in the draft for the first time since Adama can sue 10 years ago. We'll be back after this break with tonight's guests. Tonight's first guest played defensive back in the NFL for a decade, including six seasons with the Detroit Lions as the soul of their defense. Now he's living just outside Houston, have retired from the game earlier this year. Glover Quinn, welcome to the Michael Rothstein Show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, boss. So let's start here. How's retirement been? Oh, it's been cool. It's been cool. You know, just kind of sitting back, relaxing, enjoying time, exploring different things, getting into different things, man. You know, it's been cool. We finally had some time to just kind of do other stuff and, find out other things about yourself that, you know, maybe you didn't even realize why you were, you know, young and playing and, and going after that dream. So it's been cool. What's maybe something that you learned about yourself that either you didn't know or that maybe you knew, but were like, wow, I can really kind of dig into this more now that you've had a fall free for the first time, I don't know, probably ever. Well, I never really have really tapped into, like, my creative side. Um, I've always just been, you know, football and never really tapped into, like, the artistic side. And, you know, I don't really feel like I'm that artistic or that creative. But everybody got some form of creativity. It's just about your creativity. Um, And so, you know, just being able to get into, like, videography and some photography stuff and just kind of be able to, like, put together things and, you know, learn a lot about myself throughout the process, you know. Um, and one thing I did learn is, like, just being able to, like, slow down. Um, I think so long when, when when you're playing and 
you know, you're, you're in that life and, you know, you're trying to like make it, you're trying to stay, you're trying to do this, you're trying to do that. You know, you're just kind of going a hundred miles per hour and you come home for a whole season and now it's all right, everything to get ready for the next season. And you just going on this, on this ride for a very long time. And so for me, um, it was it was really hard for me to just kind of slow down and like take things in. And so throughout this process, it's been cool to just be able to slow down, you know, see things from a different perspective, you know, take it in, really get a good view of things and, you know, just kind of learn and do something different. So it's been cool. How, how did you end up kind of teaching yourself to slow down? Because that would seem to me to be something that would be really, really difficult for someone like you to, to be able to do? Well, you know, when, when I was, you know, when, when I'm editing video, you know, I'm, re- I'm literally in my office, you know, it's probably, you know, for the most part, you know, late at night and it's quiet and there's nobody here but in the office but me and my thoughts. Um, and so to really be able to connect with the video, connect with what I want to put out or what I want to show, you know, I really have to like sit back and just like think and slow down and just relax and like get in this calm state. Um, and even when I'm like filming my kids at sporting events, you know, it's just being able to like slow down, take in each moment, stay calm. And, you know, generally I wasn't like that. You know, generally I was, you know, I'm going a hundred miles an hour. I'm at the game and I'm in the game. Um, even though I wasn't actually in the game, you know, I was just, um, you know, go doing different things and, you know, rushing and, and, you know, just a lot of stuff like that. And so when you really start to like dive into it and, you know, for me, it was basically kind of learning a totally different language um, because obviously you may know some things about videography and photography, but learning the technical terms and the, the, the way to do certain things and just so, so much different than anything I've ever, I've ever learned. And so just kind of learn the new language, learning the skill, um, you know, it's very, it's very humbling, obviously, especially when you see uh, some of these guys who are super talented um, and you just be like, wow, like this is, this is great, great what they're putting out. And, you know, it's very humbling to go from, you know, obviously being a professional and one, and one, you know, career, um, to actually probably being like a rookie or even maybe a college student in another one. So it's, uh, it's cool. Did you it's take cool. Did you take any classes in videography or photography at New Mexico? Where, or like, was this just something legitimately in retirement? You're like, yeah, I want to do this. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't, you know, I was in school. I took business classes, you know, football was on my mind and, you know, business and, you know, stuff like that, which those classes are going to end up helping me because I've actually started, you know, um, my own like little production company that I'm going to obviously be, you know, expanding, you know, over the coming months and years and stuff. Obviously, in my retirement, it helped me, but it basically just came from, you know, I used to record, you know, my kids playing sports and, you know, I had tons of video from them. And, 
Um, you know, I would put together little highlight videos from like Apple Movie or whatever, iMovie. Um, and then it just got to the point to where I was kind of like, you know, I want to get like some better video. I want to get like some, you know, I see so many people with cameras and so many people with like different videos. I'm like, why do video look so much more clear than like my video? So um, I wanted to get better cameras and and then and take like the editing to the next level I'm like there got to be some different editing platforms where you can really do like some cool stuff and so i just kind of reached out to a friend that that's in videography and was just like hey man what kind of camera like is a good camera like start with and you know i kind of got the camera and kind of got the software and i just kind of you know started back in back in may when i got my camera and you know i just kind of been going ever since and so once I got into that, it was just kind of like, all right, if I'm going to do this, you know, I, I kind of want to be good at it. So I started looking at film school um, so I can, like, learn the technical aspects of things and just kind of learn all that stuff. And so I've been taking film classes and just doing all that type of stuff. And like I said, it literally just started around like a hobby. Um, it's a hobby of shooting videos for my kids playing sports. And, you know, now I'll be shooting you know, I shoot real estate videos for, for homes and, uh, you know, for sale and stuff like that. And, and you know, it's fun for me um, to just kind of spend some time, go and shoot a house. Some of these houses are dope, man. I get to shoot a house and then, you know, I get to, I get to put the video, put a video together, you know, my take and my, my, you know, perspective of the, of the home and, um, like I said, it's fun, it's cool, it's fulfilling, like, you know, and I just walk around with my cameras all day. <laughs> did I, I mean, did you ever talk to Romeo Aquara about this during your last year in Detroit? Because, I, I mean, I don't know how much you know about Romeo, but he's a very accomplished photographer and has been published a bunch of places and had an exhibition in New York, actually, in September. Like, did you ever have conversations with him or, or have you since you started doing this? Nah, I actually haven't because, like I said, when I was playing, I wasn't even thinking about videography like that. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, I was thinking about, you know, my GoPro cameras and stuff that I would have set up at the games. And, you know, I had plenty of conversations with the strength coaches and, you know, at the in, in Detroit just about all the cameras that I would have set up at the games. You know, it started with one camera and then grew to two cameras and three cameras because I, I wanted to capture so many different angles. Um but, you know, during the season, I wasn't really thinking about, like, a, you know, going into photography. And I, and I don't really do a lot of photography. I'm just kind of learning photography because, obviously, you need a couple photos to go along with video. Um, but, no, I never had any conversation with Romeo. I've seen um, some of the stuff that he's done. And he, he's actually really good. So, yeah, I follow him and, you know, I check him out. But, no, I haven't had any conversations with him about it. So, wait, the GoPro stuff, what would you do? I, I actually, this is something I never knew that you did, what would you do with the GoPros at games? Like, where would you set them up? Like, what was the advantage for you there? Oh, well, so when I first started out, I was just set them up right behind home plate. Um, clip, it to the, clip it to the fence, set it up behind home plate, and, you know, GoPro has a wide angle, so I lit, literally could record the whole game. And so when my son was younger playing, obviously I was recording, you know, their games, but then I was also coaching. So it also gave me an, an advantage, I guess, to be able to see, like, some of the things that our team was doing. Um, because when you're coaching, obviously, you can't see everybody all the time. 
So you go back and watch the film, which was normal for me because I watched film for a living. So being able to go back and just watch the film of our games and see things that were hurting us, see things that were that were you know causing us you know some problems to be able to like showcase that and be able to like highlight that and you know to help our teams you know we went on we won tons of games we won championships all-star championships like you know it it was good so I just kind of fell in love with watching the film and so I would set a GoPro behind home plate I would set one up behind like first base angle so I can get that side I would set one up on the third base side so I can just get I just wanted to capture the whole whole field because you know, kids make plays. My son was making a lot of plays, nice plays, and I wanted to capture it from every angle. You never know which going to be the, the best angle. So I would just set up cameras everywhere. Are your kids pretty much sticking with baseball at this point? Or are they playing a bunch of sports? Or Well, yeah, just on the, on the team right now, they're just playing baseball. But we okay. do a lot of football stuff around the house, and you know, I kind of told them. Before I put you out there on the football field, I got to train. You got to go through some training. You got to learn how to play the game, you know. And, you know, I'm not a huge fan of, like, tackle football at this young of an age, especially with pads on, you know. Um, I didn't really start playing tackle football with pads until seventh grade. So, um, I'm not, you know, in a huge hurry for them to get out there and play. But they want to play. They, they love it. I mean, we play every day. So, I just told them, hey, I got to teach you some stuff, you know, just some just some things about the game so that at least when you go out there, you can protect yourself and you know how to play and you know certain things to do. And obviously, they'll learn more when they're actually playing the game, but at least they'll get some some kind of knowledge of it and it helps them understand it. So going back into the way, way past for you now, like because like you were talking about, you didn't really start playing tackle until seventh grade or so. What When did you realize you might, be able to be an NFL player? Um, when did I realize I might be able to be an NFL player? Honestly, like, I actually quit football going into high school. I didn't really want to play. I wanted to be a basketball player. Um, you know, after my eighth grade season in basketball at the middle school, I finished that year playing at the high school with the varsity. So I was in eighth grade playing varsity basketball. Um, and so I was, I was sold on like, you know, basketball was, was my, uh, was my route and I didn't want to get hurt playing football. So I actually gave it up. And so I didn't go to any of the summer workouts. I didn't do any of, the, of that stuff and, you know, get to school the first day I go down to the gym, you know, and I watched all my friends walk to the football field and I'm like, man, they might act, we might actually be good this year, you know, um, if I go in the gym and there's literally nobody in the gym, and I'm just like, man, I think I'm going to go play football, man. So I walked in and I asked the coach if I can play. And it's funny, the coach that had got moved at the coach to, middle, to coach the high school was my coach in middle school. And so he uh, he knew me as a player already. So that, that was a good transition. And so I actually played uh, varsity football as a freshman. Um and I played basketball, so I was going back and forth between both. And then, um, you know, I got I went to JUCO to play football, and I was going to go to the same JUCO and play basketball at the same time. Um, but then I ended up breaking my arm my first year in football. So then that took the off season because I was still trying to recover, so I couldn't play basketball. And so then 
Um, when that next season came around, I played football again, and then I got a scholarship to New Mexico. And once I got the scholarship to New Mexico, basketball was kind of out of the out of the equation for me then. So then I went to New Mexico, and the goal was like, all right, man, I kind of got to a D1 school. That's what I wanted to do, and, and you know, now is my my time to show that that I can play at a high level. Um, and so after my junior year, um, going into my senior year, you know, going through the junior days and all that stuff, it was just kind of like, all right, I kind of got a shot at this. And I was kind of, you know, getting a little publicity, getting a little hype behind it. And it was like, hey, I got a, I got a shot at this. And came out my senior year, had a good senior year. And, um, you know, the rest is history. So when you get to, like you said, when you get to your senior year, you're like, I've got a real good shot at this point. Right. Yeah. So when you get to when you get to the league, what's that like as a rookie for you? I mean, do you do you get, oh. do you kind of get it right away because you played at a school that didn't produce like Alabama or Auburn or Ohio State or something like someplace like that? Well, the thing about it, you know, and I heard this a lot while I was playing. You know, people were telling me while I was playing that, man, you're a professional already, even in college. You know the way I used to carry myself, the way I used to practice, the way I used to kind of do things, you know, they would tell me, like, dude, you're, you're a pro already. And I, I didn't know because I never, I had never been there. Um, but then once I got to the league, I was just kind of the same way. You know, I showed up early, you know, in college. I showed up early in, in the pros. I worked hard. I practiced hard. I played hard in college, and I kind of did the same things. You know, I was, I was a good student in college. And I ended up being a good student of the game when I got to the league. And so kind of a lot of the same things that I'd done in college, you know, there was just my personality, just the way that I was and the way that I conducted my business. And that ended up helping me, um, you know, when I was in, when I was in the league. And so coming in, it was really just about adapting to the life, you know, um, learning the scheme, and really just getting to the point to where you felt like, you know what, I'm in the NFL. This is the place where you've watched for so long, and now I'm here. Um, and I got my opportunity to, to, to be here, and now I got to make the most of it. So I went out to my first OTA as a rookie, and I called like five interceptions. And, you know, that right there kind of opened up their eyes because they didn't even really draft me to be like a, a outside corner. They really only drafted me to play in the nickel because they liked my tackling ability. They knew I, you know, was smart and stuff like that. But then when I caught five interceptions in OTAs, it was like, oh, well, maybe he can play out there. And so um, kind of got moved into the starting lineup week four. And, you know, the D coordinator told me at the time, he was like, if you don't let you start, you know, don't give us a reason to take it back. And, you know, every time I see him, you know, Frank Bush, you know, it's always – Hey, you know, a hundred and fifty some games later, you know, I never, I never, I never gave it back, you know. So that was cool. It was cool. It was different, but it was just something that, you know, like I said, my personality. I always wanted to just play as hard as I could, do everything I could for the game, and you know, it translated over from college and into the pros. So, what when you look back at your career now, what what's your favorite moment from it? 
I mean, I don't know if I have a favorite moment. You know, I have so many, so many like great moments. You know, I mean, some of the some of the games that um, some of the games that I played in, people that I've met were phenomenal. The places that I've been, I can't say I have a favorite moment. You know, obviously, making some big plays and big games, man. Winning our first division in Houston. You know that was that was big. You know, um, you know that was that was huge. Uh, coming to Detroit, catching my first interception in Detroit was was huge to me because it was kind of like I was, you know, I I signed in Detroit based off what they maybe thought was potential. You know, because I hadn't really played the role that they wanted me to play, and so for me to come in in my first game and kind of and catch an interception it was like. Oh, it felt it felt good, but then to come right back in week four and catch another one was like, man, it, it felt it felt really good. Um, you know, some of the interceptions that I caught later in my career. Um, you know, going to the playoffs in in Detroit, playing against the Cowboys, that was huge. You know, just trying to change the culture in Detroit. Like all those things were just like, you know. Awesome, getting to go to London and playing in that game, being down 21 and nothing at halftime and coming back and winning 21-22. Um, there's so many different moments, so many different things that, that happened over my career. Like, it's hard to pick, like, a favorite. I kind of feel like all of them kind of go hand-in-hand. They all kind of, you know, pick it back off each other in some type of way and one led to another. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's all moments. So when you – like you were saying, I mean, when you come to Detroit, they're asking you to play something you hadn't done before. Were you worried at all? Like, were you concerned? Like, they're paying me this money, asking me to do this job, and it's something that is going to maybe take a minute. No, I wasn't concerned because I always felt like that's cool what I could do. Like, even when I was in Houston, you know, when I moved to safety in Houston, I was playing safety, but on passing situations, they moved me down to play the dime. And I was basically covering tight ends and you know, running backs and just doing a lot of dirty work on the inside. Um, but as I'm watching film, I would see, like, some of the balls that quarterbacks would be throwing and some of the plays that the safety will have an opportunity to make. And I was just always like, man, if I was playing safety, like, I feel like I could have picked that one. Like, man, I could have got that one. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's where I always felt. But I was the one down there playing the man-to-man and blitzing and doing all the dirty work. And so – when I got to Detroit, it was like, all right, they didn't want me to be down there in the box like that. They wanted me to be the free safety to go and make plays and catch interceptions and do stuff like that. It's just when I first got there, Lewis Demos was there. And Demos wasn't really – he wasn't really a strong, free type of guy. He was more of a left and right type of guy. So Demos was left-handed, so he wanted to play on the right side of the field every single play and I was like all right cool you know so I played on the left side every single play and so in turn some downs I would be the free safety depending on the formation and some downs I would be the strong safety depending on the formation um but I was never down like in the box like like I was in Houston so I had some opportunities and I started off the season great until you know, I tore my ankle up in week four against Chicago and it kind of slowed me down my first year there. Um, but I was off to an incredible start in, in 2013. And so to come back in 2014 and, you know, really just play free safety because, 
you know, we had signed James Ahedibol, and James Ahedibol was more of a in-the-box safety, and so that allowed me to be the free safety and be able to roam around in the in the defensive backfield and and make plays back there and kind of see the game and, and control the game, communicate to the guys from from being back the whole time. And so it was cool, but I was never really, you know, concerned if I could play it. It was just, you know, you just never know how many opportunities you're going to get to make plays and, you know, how it's going to turn out. And so I was just anxious and excited. And so once I came up my first game and I was able to end the game with a pick and beat a Minnesota team, you know, division rival, that was huge for me. So, like you said, I mean, you, you mentioned the ankle injury then. You played through a ton in your career, but you started every game beyond that, despite that. What's the toughest injury that you had? Was there one that you were like, I really don't know if I'm, I'm going to actually be able to get out there this week? Yeah, I would say my, my ankle. Um, and then I tore up my elbow in 2011 um so I, I dislocated my elbow um chipped it cracked it like it was awful i don't know if you remember but a couple of years ago well back, back in like 2000 and probably would have been like 2010 maybe michael james the running back for oregon um had this horrific injury on national tv i think where he tore up his elbow um, down around the end zone, he's kind of trying to brace himself and his elbow just kind of collapsed. Um, I've basically done the same thing. Um, but I didn't even really know it was that bad. You know, it just kind of felt weird. And I kept playing. I came in at halftime and I kind of got like a little wrap on it to keep it like stable because it felt unstable. And I finished the game up and, you know, we won the game. It hurt it like heck. Um, but after game, go to the doctor, and it's like, uh, you got this, you got that. And it's like, oh, wow. Um, so the next week, um, I probably shouldn't have played. I had a big elbow brace on. But for me, we were playing against the Atlanta Falcons the next week, and they had Tony Gonzalez. And the fact that I was playing the dime, I was the one that was going to be guarding Tony Gonzalez. And Tony Gonzalez was a great player, Hall of Fame player, and, and I wanted to play against him. And so even though my elbow was jacked up, I was like, bump it, man. I got to figure out a way to play. And so I did. And it's kind of the same thing happened in Detroit. You know, I tore my ankle up in week 14. I mean, week four against the Chicago Bears. Um, and, you know, with that, you know, I had torn cartilage. I had a grade three tear on the – inside ligament, a grade two tear on my outside ligament. My ankle was super swollen. But it just so happened that in week five, we were going to Lambeau Field in Green Bay. And I always wanted to play at Lambeau Field. And I didn't want my first time to go to Lambeau Field. I couldn't play because of my ankle. So I kind of did everything I could to get back out there and play because I wanted to play at Lambeau Field. And so once I played in that game, it was just kind of like, all right, well, just going to try to tough it out. And, you know, I fought through the season. There were some games that hurt worse than others, so I had to miss more time. Some games it felt really good, and I was able to play better. So, you know, it was just kind of like one of those things. Um, once I kind of was going, it was like, I right, bump it. I'm trying to fight through it. So it was a lot of treatment and all types of stuff. So, um, but, yeah, I would say those two are probably – I mean, I broke my hand, you know, but that wasn't – 
now and be like like now that you're done like do you look back and say oh how did I play through that like do you sit there and wonder like wow yeah 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 I, I sit back and I think about all that stuff and, and you know and I think for me I, I, I think back to like how I was as a kid you know when I was a kid I used to hate missing playing in the neighborhood if we were playing basketball or football in the neighborhood I used to hate missing it you know I never wanted to miss a game I never wanted to miss you know, a day of playing um, going through middle school and high school, I, I never, I hated missing time. I hated, I hated missing it. So, um, just being that way and building that up through, you know, my my younger years. When I got to the NFL, it was it was kind of the same thing for me. It's like I don't want to miss. Like I want to be out there. You know, like I want to be on the field. Um, you can't you can't perform if you're not on the field. And so. For me, it was just about showing toughness and just doing everything I can and be out there for my teammates each and every week. And so um, you just kind of get going. And, you know, you don't really think about certain things for a long time. You're kind of playing. And then I look up and it's like, man, I have played in 80 straight games. Like, wow. Okay, I'm close to 100. Okay. Next thing you know, man, this is my 100 straight game that I started. Wow. Okay. And so then once you get up there, it's kind of like, all right, now you got a streak. And so that's kind of how, you know, I, that's why I felt bad for Stafford this year because, you know, Stafford used to talk to me about the streak all the time. And he had his own streak going. You know, he got up to 100 consecutive games and this. Um, and so I know how it is. You know, you have certain injuries that, you know, you deal with and you play with. And when you have a, a streak like that, you know, you fight through a lot of things. Um and so once he came, once they came out and said they weren't going to let him play, or you know, I don't know how bad it was, but once he broke his streak this year, I told somebody, I said, Stop for problem play again this year. I was like, because, you know, the streak kind of keeps you going. It kind of kind of gives you a little extra fire. And I was like, oh, now it's just kind of like, oh, heck, you know, now it's all right. I want to be as completely as healthy as I can. I'm not trying to push through anything for this trick and for that I'm already I've already missed. So once he missed that game, I think those bodies I probably won't play again this year. And um that's just gonna happen. Um those things are it's hard it's hard to play that many games, um, you know, in the NFL it's a physical sport, it's difficult. You mentioned obviously, you know, streaks. The last season of your career, what was that actually like for you? Because you know, you missed the spring. You didn't go to the spring workouts. You had asked for your release from the Lions, and then they didn't they didn't grant it for you. What was that year actually like in Detroit for you? You know, it was it was it was uh, it was weird. It was different. Um, you know, because I know for me, you know, even before I had came into the league. I only wanted to play 10 years in the NFL. And that was one of the reasons why I asked was because I knew I didn't want to play but one more year. If it was a great situation for me to play another year. Um, and so I was like, all right, well, a part of me wanted to 
career. And I was like, well, the fact that I'm going to retire at my loving Houston, maybe I finished in Houston so I can kind of get back in the community. I'm thinking about all this, you know what I'm saying? And they were going to play a team last year, which was they were hiring somebody new. And I'm like, if I got to come back to Houston and play, I would be having to deal with a new coach as well. The difference was at least I would be at home with my family in Houston as opposed to not being at home with my family in Detroit. So once all those things started to transpire, it was like, all right, man, like, just let me get, just let me get out of there. Y'all can start and, and go the direction that y'all want to go. And when that didn't happen, it's like, all right, well, you know what? It didn't happen. My, I had contracts obligations to come back and, and play. And that's what I did. So when I came back, you know, I, I, I with Matt, I communicated with Bob and I told him, I'm like, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to come to the off season workout. You know, and I had a bonus. I had a workout bonus. I was like, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do it. I'm gonna stay at home and I'm gonna be here with my yelling some things. Um, and so I was just like, I'm not, I'm not going to come. So training camp came, I come out and I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm here to work. Like, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna, you know, basically still a year. I'm not going to fake some injuries and play around. Like I'm, I'm out here, I'm going to be out here to work and I'm going to try to do everything I can to help us win. And that's, that's kind of what I've done. Um, but as I'm going through the year, I kind of knew that like the organization was going in a different direction. You know, Matt Patricia's, you know, he he had a different way of doing things and I was cool with. I'm like, hey, I'm I'm a I'm a player, so I'm gonna play. I'm gonna do my role, you know, if I'm asked my opinion, I'm gonna give it. Um, you know, so I had tons of meetings and stuff like that. And you know, and it was it it was what it was, you know, and you know, we had a mutual respect for each other, you know, in a sense. And he coached, I played and, you know, I did what I could in the locker room to try to help, you know. Um but obviously we wasn't winning, um, you know, that didn't help. And like I said, midway through the season, it was just kind of like, all right, I already know, like, you know, I knew contractually I wouldn't be back in Detroit. Because um, even going into the season, I was like, I got to have a Pro Bowl year for them to bring me back at basically 33 in year 11 with the money that was tied up to it. So I already knew contractually I wasn't going to be back in Detroit. And so then it was like, all right, I definitely don't want to go anywhere new in year 11 because I really didn't want to play anymore anyway. But I was like, if I got an opportunity to come back to Houston, I would tough out a year 11 just to finish back here. And that didn't happen. So it was like, all right, I was already, you know, one foot out the door anyway. So, um, it's kind of how it works out. But, you know, I enjoyed a year of my teammates, you know. It was cool. You you said you had meetings with Patricia. Like, would Patricia ask your opinion often? Or was that more of, like, you play, I coach? Well, we we had, like, captains meeting, leadership meetings, and stuff like that. And I went a couple times, you know, just personally. Um, but yeah, we talked about all types of stuff. You know, he would ask my opinion about this and that, and you know, we talked about all types of stuff. Um, it was it was a good working relationship. You know, personally, 
So, I mean, like you were saying a little bit with like one put out the door. I'm curious when you saw Calvin, because when Calvin retired, did you see that and kind of in the back of your head say, okay, like I want to do it like that or like, like did that influence you at all kind of toward the end? No, I kind of knew how, I mean, I knew, like I said, I already had yeah. knew what I, what I was thinking. Um, like I said, I knew contractually this was going to be going on. I knew this and that's, like I said, that was another reason why I was trying to get out when I did because contractually we had a way that we could have got out of it. Um, and so everything I did was like knowing the situation forecast. And I wasn't just a player. I, I studied the business of football. I knew, you know, I knew all these situations. I knew, you know, even when I was in Houston, I knew – something major would have to happen for me to resign in Houston. Um, and so coming up on this situation, I knew, okay, I was coming off a great year in, in 17, um, but I was 31 maybe. And so, you know, it's tough when you get older as a defensive back. So I'm like, okay, it'd be better for me to be released and have an opportunity to sign maybe a two-year deal in Houston or, you know, somewhere around here. Um than to be in the deal in Detroit because I knew in Detroit it was going to be one year unless I had a basically a Pro Bowl year. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to try to get out if I can. When you look back at the last season, the Golden Tate trade, what did that actually do to the locker room? Um, I mean, I don't really know a sense of what it done to the locker room, you know, you see so much stuff out there and you know when you when you make a trade like that in the middle of the season with one of your key players um you know it, it really doesn't send a great sign to the locker room you know especially in the first year you know if you've built a relationship and a trust with the coaching staff and the GM and just all those people and you know, hey, this right here was the right move to make. Then when you make a move like that, even if it's a key player, you know, you kind of just know like this this was just this wouldn't have to happen. But when you don't have that because the coaching staff is new, now, you know, when you get rid of one of our best players offensively, you know, in that time of the season when you know, we're still fighting, trying to, like, make something happen. It's kind of like, dang, what are we doing? Like, because every time you get a new coach, you all, you obviously know that they're going to bring their guys in at some point. I mean, if you look at the defense now, there's only three guys left from, you know, Caldwell era, and that's Slay, Jared Davis, and I think Asia. Everybody else is gone in just two years. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, you know when you get a new coach, they're going to bring their guys in. And so, most of the time, you're just kind of sitting there and waiting, like, all right, am I next? Or, like, what's going on? And so, when something like that happened in the middle of the season, it's kind of like, all right, are we really trying to, like, win it? Or are we just basically, like, trying to, you know, build and get our guys in? And this is an opportunity because – and I'm going to be able to resign him next year. Or we probably don't want to resign him next year. So we can trade him and get some draft picks so that we can continue to build our team. 
You know what I'm saying? So all those things are going on. So from a player standpoint, it's just kind of like, dang, what we doing? Like, you know. But at the end of the day, our job as players is to go out and play. You know, it's to go out and play. It's just, it makes a difference when you feel like you're going out to play and you're one cohesive unit, coaches, players, managers, everybody, as opposed to this how it is with the coaches. And it's not a cohesive unit. It's totally different. And so a lot of people don't understand that. And they probably never will because, you know, as spectators, as fans, they see it from the outside. All these guys get paid a lot of money and they just go out and play football. Like, it's, it's deeper than that. And that's why you see a lot of the teams that win Super Bowls, they talk about the family environment, the family atmosphere. They talk about the love for this. They talk about that stuff because all that stuff matters when you're trying to win. Everything like cohesively working together helps. I'm guessing you didn't, did you not feel that way your last year? No, I really, I really didn't, you know, like I said, and I've said this and like I said, I'm not here to, you know, bash, you know, anybody. This is just my, my personal feelings. Um, but I, I felt, you know, it was a, uh, you know, it was just, it was, like I said, it was one of those things where you knew that they wanted to bring in their guys. And, you know, you have the whole New England, you know, reputation and this and that. And, you know, and I've said this before, and I'm not afraid to say it again. I kind of felt like Coach Patricia came in and, you know, kind of looked down on us in Detroit, like like we were at the bottom of the barrel when, you know, we were a nine and seven team two out of four years, 10 and 16, one out of four years, and we had one year we went seven and nine, which we actually started out one and six, and we fought our way back to be seven and nine. And we now lost to Green Bay in the Hail Mary game. Probably could have snuck in, so... But I felt like when he came in, it was more like we got to change everything about Detroit. It was kind of like a true outsider's perspective of like what, you know, you might have thought about Detroit when at the end of the day, it really wasn't like that. It was a really talented team, some really talented players. And yeah, we may have just needed like a little tweak of this or just a little change of that, but like, come in and feel like you got to change and tear down the whole culture and, and, you know, and talk to us and treat us like, you know, we were basically beneath people, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, I, I didn't feel like that went over well with the players. Um, and that's just kind of, that's kind of how it was. So we were talking a little bit about the Golden Tate trade just before they do it again this year with Quandre Diggs, who you're very close with. Mm-hmm. When you see that, and now you're coming from a respect perspective of a retired guy who was there when they did this on offense mm-hmm. a year ago, what what's your reaction then? Because like you said, first year, you're kind of surprised they did it, but then they do it in back-to-back years with guys who were looked at as leaders in the locker room. Mm-hmm. I mean, but, that, but that's what it is. Like I said, you, you got to get your guys in. You know, and Quandre was, you know, Quandre is a pain that he's outspoken, you know, and you know, sometimes you, you don't want that, you know, and so when you find a situation because this this is very like 
I mean, he just signed an extension last year, right? So you had just committed to him straight, like, um, but and they don't like it or they want the locker room to be, you know, and they're going to figure out a way to, um, you know, so from that era, you know, Aishan and uh, Darren Davis. And Aishan is probably a free agent, I think, coming up this year. We'll see if they resign him, you know. Slay was on the trade block. I was, I, see, I saw rumors about Philadelphia and all these other teams trying to trade and get Slay. And, all, like, it's just part of it, you know. They want to get their guys in and, you know, we you understand that as a as a football player because you go through it each and every year. Um, but when you look at back at your career, was there a moment that bothered you the most? The moment that bothered me the most? Yeah, like whether it was a play or a year or not, not getting a Super Bowl or or anything like that. You're like, yeah, that sticks with me, like as a negative maybe or as not something that was as positive. I mean, like I said, for me, like, there's so many moments that, that didn't happen. Uh, you know, you wish would have went a different way. And like I said, for me, I just kind of take it on with the perspective of, like, you know, it's a learning experience. You know, it's one of those things you either win or you learn, you know. So you learn from all those mistakes and they shape you. Um, the things that you wish you would have done in, in year one, you do them in year two. And then you look up and you wonder why when you get to year 10, you're able to connect with so many players because you've been through so much, you've seen so much, you've learned so much and every situation that they're dealing with you've dealt with it already so you kind of know, hey man, this right here like, I, I did that like, even if they make make a player miss a play, like bro, I missed that same tackle when I was a rookie, bro like, you know what, I gave up a touchdown when I was in my second year and we lost the game bro, like and, and you just take all those, at least for me, I just took all those experiences, all those moments, and, and you know, just kind of shit and light to the, to the next crew coming up, you know what I'm saying, and give them, try to get them a head start on their career. You know, I, I was I was pretty, you know, solidified in how I felt about my career. And so, you know, it was very important for me to to spread knowledge to, to the younger guys and, and try to help them. And so that's, that's, that's why men Slay are so cool. That's why men Quandra are so cool because, you know, when they were younger guys, I didn't, I didn't withhold any knowledge or any information that, that I had that I needed to, to tell them. And I just wanted them to be the best that they could be. And that's how I was with, with any and everybody that, that came to the secondary, you know, Anytime we would sign somebody or draft somebody, I call them, text them, you know, welcome them to the squad, welcome them to the room, welcome to the defense, you know, let them know anything they need. They can hit me up. Like, you know, I just, I just wanted that for them because there were times when I, when I signed in Detroit, you know, nobody reached out to me, you know what I'm saying? And I knew what that felt like to sign to be a big free agent and coming in and, you know, nobody reached out to you. It was like three weeks later, and Don Carey reached out to me, you know, but I had already been signed for like three weeks, you know. And so I knew what that felt like. And I didn't want that for anybody else. And so when we when we hired, you know, when they fired the first staff and we hired the new coaches, I called the DB coaches and just let them know, like, you know, just welcome them to the to Detroit, you know, just in and everybody. I would always do that because, you know, those moments, you know, 
meant something to me. And, you know, when it didn't happen for me, I was like, I know how I felt walking into that locker room that day when I didn't really know anybody, hadn't heard from anybody. And so I at least wanted them to walk in feeling comfortable knowing that it's a family environment and they don't know anything. They know, uh, they, they at least talked to me. So just a lot of stuff that you learn throughout the years that you go through that, like I said, for me, I just, I just take all of it as a learning experience and, and, and just try to, just try to pass the knowledge on. So we have every interview on the show that I do, we end with a series of like five or six rapid fire questions. What's right, hold, the... on. Hold, on, hold on, hold on, before, yeah. before we do that, do we got yeah. time? Before we do that, because I need, I need to address one thing. Yeah, sure. All right, so I, I, went, I went on Good Morning Football last week and I said what I said about the lines, right? Mm-hmm. And I, somebody sent me this YouTube podcast or video, somebody, somebody was saying how they felt like I was making comments because I was jealous or resentful or angry or whatever about my last time in Detroit and how all that went about. And for one, I got no reason to be angry. I did exactly what I wanted to do in the league. I played exactly how many years I wanted to play. And that was that. Like, I've never once, you you can look back at any interview, I've never once said anything about Coach Matt Patricia's scheme. Now, one time have I said anything about his scheme. I said some players don't like his style. It's a difference. It's two totally different things, okay? Mm-hmm. I've never once said you can talk to Tracy Walker. I've never once hid or uh, kept anything away from Tracy because they drafted him last year and they wanted him to play. Like, I used to tell Tracy all the time, like, you the next guy, like Quandre, all those guys. I knew who 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 I was. I knew what it was. I wasn't mad that they released me. Why would I be mad? I was happy. Like, I'm cool. I knew it was going to happen. I wanted them to tell me before I even left Detroit, honestly. So, to sit here and say that I'm jealous of the Detroit Lions? No, I'm not. To sit here and say I'm resentful? No, I'm not. But what I will say is I played there, so I know what goes on on the inside. I'm retired, but I played six years. I got a lot of friends that play, play there, that still play there. I still got a connection to the city because I played there for six years, and they showed me so much love. So, yes, I still watch the Detroit Lions every Sunday. And so when I see things that go on, when I see things that happen, and I get my opinion on it, it has nothing to do with me being resentful. It has nothing to do with me being jealous or angry or anything like that. That's just my opinion. And I know a little bit more than what everybody else knows that just see things from the outside and and try to form an opinion. Oh, well, this why this happened or this why that happened. I know a little bit more. I've been on the inside. I've been in those meetings. I've been that guy. So when I say stuff, I kind of know what I'm talking about. Just want to. Okay, now ask. we can do. Now we can. Okay, now uh, we can uh, do what you want to do. <laughs> no, no, no. I, before, I just, I, before, before, yeah. Before we get there, I actually want to follow up on that. You know, like you said, you've never really commented on the scheme, but you talk to a lot of guys. Like, is you played in the scheme? Is the scheme sustainable? Is this something that you feel can work? Because I think that that that, like you said, that's maybe where people are getting confused between style and scheme. 
Well, the, the thing is, the thing is, there's certain factors that go into winning. Obviously, people look at yards and this, this, and that, right? First of all, you keep people out the end zone, you got a good chance of winning. So a lot of the teams that are going to be winning, they got a good red zone defense. They stop people from scoring, even if they give up a bunch of yards. And if you look at the Patriots over the years, the Patriots hardly ever was a top five defense but they might be top five in scoring defense because they play good red zone defense. You might march all the way up and down the field, but when you get to the end zone, it's tough to score. You kick field goals, they score touchdowns, they win the game, right? You look at another factor, turnovers. Turnovers in the NFL is huge, especially nowadays on offenses that are all-time high. You know, a lot of times it comes down to somebody got to make a play. Like, it's very hard nowadays to just stifle teams all the time. It's hard. So at some point, somebody got to make a play. Somebody got to make a, a turnover, interception, force fumble. Something has to happen. Um, and, you know, when, when you look at, you know, Coach Patricia's scheme, you know, they run a lot of man-to-man. You know, they run a lot of man-to-man. And that's cool. But it's hard to run a lot of man-to-man when you're not sending a bunch of pressure because it's hard to cover these guys all over the field. You know, when, when, when offenses know that you run a lot of man-to-man, they're going to give you all these crossing routes, deep crossing routes, deep. Like, they're going to give you those routes that's very difficult to cover in man-to-man, especially if they know that they're not getting but a two- or three-man rush. So all this stuff go hand-in-hand, you know. It's hard to get turnovers and man-to-man because you're not watching the ball. You're watching your man. So you get a lot of pass breakups in man-to-man. You get – if anybody's going to catch interceptions in man, it's probably going to be the free safety because he is able to watch the quarterback. When you play zone, everybody has eyes on the quarterback. So everybody can see the ball. So then more people have opportunities to see the ball and react and make plays. So when you talk about a good scheme, you want to have a good mixture of everything. You want to have some good zones. You want to have some good men because you got to be able to play man. But when a defense or when the offense knows that you're going to be in man 90% of the time, then they're going to run all their man beaters. And nowadays they got a ton of man beaters that makes it very difficult to cover. Very difficult. And, yeah, you might have Slay. He's a great cover corner. But it's hard for players across the field. Like, that is very difficult to do. Um, you know, so is this, scheme, is this scheme sustainable? You know, you got to look at New England and say New England, New England runs a lot of man-to-man. You know, they do a lot of things, too, as well. They do some other stuff. But is their scheme sustainable in New England? I mean, I, I saw something the other day. I think New England blitzes a lot. They see pressure. It's hard. Like I said, it's hard to cover man-to-man, especially when you're not getting a great pass rush, you know. And they got they spent a lot of money on Trey Flowers, you know, got Devin Kennard. So they got some good guys coming off the edge. But when you don't just turn those guys loose a lot of the time, it slows them down in, in pass coverage. And then that – and it makes it difficult. It makes it difficult. But, you know, their yards may be down at times, but you're going to give up some big plays, 
And then when you play defense, you play man to man for a full game, you know, you get in the fourth quarter, which a lot of these games they've lost in the fourth quarter. You know, being up, can't hold a lead, this and this and that. You know, all it takes is a pass interference, a give up a big play here, there. And I, and I feel bad for the DBs because they work extremely hard. Like I said, I've been there. I'm not just saying this because I look at the game. I'm saying this because I've been there. I know exactly what it feels like to be chasing these little guys all over the field. Like, it's difficult, especially in the fourth quarter because wide receivers come out. Every time they run a deep route, they come out. DBs, we stay in. So wide receivers might play 40 plays a game. DBs, like, it's a difference. So, you know, um, hey, man, nobody talks about this game when you're winning and when you're playing well. Everybody loves it, you know. But when, you, <laughs> when you're not winning and you're not playing well, they're going to say something about it, you know. And, I mean, it's the difference. You know, Slay, you know, Slay went, what, eight interceptions one year, maybe whatever another year. And I think, you know, last year he had, what, two, maybe three. Yeah, this year he got, year. what, two, maybe, two. two, maybe three. You know, and like I said, the numbers are down. But the, it's going to be hard to catch a lot of interceptions when you play man-to-man. It's very difficult. No, that so. makes sense. That makes complete sense. And, Slay, and Slay's actually kind of hinted at that a few times of just how, t- how tough crossing routes are on a corner in man because you're just running 40 yards across the field. And right. it's impossible. Right. So, okay. But, so, you know. Yeah. No, uh, that all makes a ton of sense. Um, so as I was saying, uh, we do some rapid fire stuff at the end of every interview. Um, let's start here. What's the best piece of trash talk you ever heard in the league? What's the what? Best piece of trash talk you ever heard in the league? Um, you know what? I didn't really hear much trash talk because I wasn't a talker, so people didn't really talk to me as far as, like, trash talking. Um, so I didn't really hear a lot of trash talking, honestly. Okay. You were coaching Little League for a while, like we were talking about, you know, at the top of this. What's the best coaching point you got from one of your coaches? The best coaching point I got from one of my coaches. Like, as a, like, um, yeah, to coach. To, I'm not understanding. Okay, yeah, sorry. Like, what, like, from Caldwell or from Schwartz or from whoever it was, like, or a college coach, whatever, what's the best, like, maybe piece of coaching advice you got or, or thing you took from a oh. coach? Oh, just being honest. Being honest, as a player, that's the one thing you want. Even though it may hurt, you just be honest. Like, if I can play, let me know I can play. If I can't play, let me know I can't play. What I need to work on, what I need to improve on, uh, just be honest. And, like, take your emotional feelings out of it and just evaluate the film. Like, see what you can do and what you can't do. And, like, you know, be honest about it. Because once you're honest about it, then you can, like, figure out ways to fix it, figure out ways to help it. So, even when I was, you know, in Little League, and like I say, those kids were little. They were, you know, seven, eight years old, nine years old. It was still about being honest, you know, letting them know what they are doing, what they're not doing, you know, telling them things they need to do to get better, um, pushing them. Like, it was, that was, that's what it was, and it was focusing on the details, which that was a big thing with call was focus on the details, you know, focus on the, focus on the little things and the big things to take care of themselves, and so 
you know, that's 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 true. And that was kind of one of the things that I, I still to this day talk about. You know, you got to do all the little things right. If you do the little things, the big things, they'll take care of themselves. But you got to do all the little things. And so many times people, you know, they just want to hit the home run. <laughs> they don't want to line up right. <laughs> they don't want to keep their eye on the ball. You know what I'm saying? They don't want to swing all the way through the ball. They just want to see the ball go over the fence. And it's like, well, if you, you know, get in the box, get in proper stance, you know, go through your progression, you know, keep your eyes on the ball, you know, swing through the ball, finish your swing, more than likely if you hit it correctly, it might go over the fence if you've got that kind of power. So that was, that was, that was a couple of things that I just, you know, I took and I, and I try to, you know, impart them to the young kids. When you were in the league, you were a PA rep for a while. Do you think there's going to be a work stoppage when the CBA is up? Um, nah, I don't think it's going to be a work stoppage. That's figured out. At least I hope. What's the, what do you think is the issue the players need to worry about the most coming into, the, coming into this negotiation? I mean, I think for players, obviously, players want the most money that we can get, obviously, the best benefits that we can get, obviously. And, you know, while we want to play 18 games, 16 games is, is hard enough. You know what I'm saying? You know, can we get lifetime health insurance? You know, there's so many guys that play, and a lot of times, as you know, yeah, we might get five years of coverage after we're done playing, you know, but a lot of times, things may not start really acting up until about eight years, you know what I'm saying? And so um, can we get that? Like, yeah, there's some things that are important to the players. At the end of the day, you know, the money is, is, is important. The benefits are important. Um, so but I'm, I'm pretty sure they'll figure that stuff out. And who's the best teammate you've ever had? Oh, my gosh, man. I realize that's a t- that might be the toughest question I've asked. You. That's the toughest question you've asked me because I've had, I've had so many great ones for so many different reasons. It's hard to just say I had the best teammate. You know what I'm saying? I could name so many teammates that were great to me for different reasons, and you may feel like they wasn't a great teammate, like, but for me, they were great for a different reason. You know, I can name. Just to name a few guys, and I'm not going to go into detail, but uh, Andre Johnson was a great teammate to me. Dante Robinson was a great teammate. Kareem Jackson, Jonathan Joseph was great. Daniel Manning was great. Um, Arian Foster was great. Bryce was great. You know, this, you know Bryce McCain is talking to some of my guys in Houston, in Detroit. You know, Tully was great. Slay was great. You know, even Delmas was great. Um, Sue. Sue was great. Calvin Johnson was great. Like, for so many different reasons. So many different reasons. So many different reasons. Quandre, Golden Tate, James and Yeah. Hey, man, seriously, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on, dude. I really appreciate it. All right. My next guest covered Ohio State for a long time, and now he's the Cleveland.com sports columnist, where he spent a bunch of time this season at chasing and tracking the career of Chase Young. Doug LaMaurice, thank you for coming on the Michael Rothstein Show. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, absolutely. And let's start here. So what's Chase Young like as a person? 
I like Chase a lot. Um, he is a thoughtful guy. He, I wrote a story uh, earlier this year. He has like a real seriousness of purpose about him. Um, that he, he's one of those guys who like clearly states his goals. Um, and he can be like a, like a fun loving dude, but like he is really sort of serious about uh, the craft. And so like, he's this giant guy. He has these long blonde dreadlocks. People call him the predator and, and he's adopted that nickname willingly. He likes that. He kind of has a little look like that. But he's just like a really like serious, like smart, thoughtful guy that you really can sit down with. Where did the Predator nickname come from? You know, it's just he, he really, especially with the helmet on, he really kind of does look like that. I think it started, I don't know if it preceded him here, um, but when he got here as a freshman, he was in a defensive end room um, with four other older defensive ends who would all be drafted into the NFL. So I think it, it came around then that um, – you know, he was sort of the young guy in a room with veterans, but they were all very, very aware of his potential back then. So what's he like as a player? I mean, I think everybody sees him on Saturdays and they see the sacks, they see the big plays, but how would you describe him maybe a little bit more technically? And is he a guy that can play in the 3-4 or the 4-3? Or is there what do you think maybe there's one style of defense that might fit him better than the other? Yeah, Ohio State always plays um, a 4-3. So that's what all these defensive ends coming out from Ohio State have, are used to. But they have stood – he has stood up at times this year, uh, especially in the first matchup against Wisconsin. They allowed him to stand up and kind of move around the line and sort of look for the gap, look for the opening where he wanted to pass rush from. Um, for a lot of reasons, he's compared to the Bosa brothers because, you know, you think about it, Ohio State, they had a guy who was the third pick in the draft – they had a guy who was the second pick in the draft, and now they have Chase Young, who might be the first pick in the draft. I think he's more athletic than either of those guys. I thought Joey Bosa was a great technician. I thought Nick Bosa was really powerful. I think Chase is a combination of all of those. And Larry Johnson, the defensive line coach, I think teaches hand fighting and technique um, as well as anybody in college football. And so Chase has all of that. But he also has great bend. He has great explosiveness off the line. He has great speed. Um, and he, he's just really the whole package athletically and technically. So, okay, you just fawned about him for, I don't know, about a minute. Where would his weaknesses be at this point? It's hard, man. Like, it's, it's funny, Mike. You know this stuff. It's like we're always looking for that, right? I mean, you cover a team, and I feel like if you're a writer for a team – you should know the weaknesses of your team better than anybody. It's easy to know what's great about a team, but what really, where, where are the soft spots? I, they don't jump out with him. It's not like he has problems against the run. You know, if you did ask him to drop back in pass coverage, I know he could do it. Um, he's not, He's not a prima donna. He's not a problem off the field. He had the NCAA thing that was a two-game suspension this year, but it was a relatively minor deal, and, and it's nothing that would scare anybody in the way in terms of off-the-field stuff. So, again, you don't want to be fawning. I, I don't know exactly. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I honestly don't know. There's a direct comparison here because I've been covering the Browns this year as well. And I've thought a lot about Chase Young compared to Miles Garrett as a defensive end who was the first pick in the draft. And I think Chase Young might be more complete than Miles Garrett. So, like, it's, it's hard, but there certainly is not an obvious one, and I'm having trouble thinking of a weakness. 
So, okay, so you've done this comparison and you've seen both of them play. Are you saying Miles Garrett, like when he came in as a rookie or like Miles Garrett today? I mean, well, not today, today since he's suspended, but, you know, before the pre-suspension Miles Garrett, where you're making that comparison of where Chase Young, Young I mean, I guess point. more when, when Miles came in, I think Chase is going to be more advanced than Miles when he came in because I do think Larry Johnson gets guys ready for the league. And you see what Nick Bosa is doing as a rookie. Right. I mean, Nick Bosa was on Ohio State last year. He got hurt after three games, but Ohio State's starting defensive ends last season at the beginning of the year were Nick Bosa and Chase Young. It's nuts. But Nick was ready right away. I think Chase will be ready right away. I think Miles is a little bendier. Miles, I, I do think, is a little more um, sinewy, is a little bendier coming off the edge. Chase, I think, is a little bigger. Um, and I think he's a little more power. Miles gets great bend and really is hard to block that way. Um, but Chase is not stiff. He's certainly not stiff. So I think comparing him to Miles when Miles came in, Chase is definitely ahead. And, and I do think Chase even right now would be close to Miles is right now because Chase I do think is advanced in terms of technique. So you've seen a lot, like we've been talking about over the last few minutes, you've seen a ton of talent come through Ohio State, especially on the defensive line. So has Larry Johnson throughout his career. Where do you think Chase Young ranks in the hierarchy maybe of both Ohio State defensive ends and maybe even defensive players, period? And maybe also where among the guys Larry Johnson's coached, although you might not be able to speak on that, and I know that. Yeah, I know Larry had guys like Tom Bahali and Courtney Brown at Penn State. He has a litany of first-round guys. Um, I mean, Courtney, you know, Courtney Brown was the number one overall pick in the draft for the Cleveland Browns. Um, after working with Larry Johnson. So Larry has a list for sure. Um, I mean, really, Mike, this is, I, it makes me sound like a homer. Um, I'm sorry, man. I apologize. I know that we don't like that. Yeah. I mean, I've covered Ohio. This is my 15th season covering Ohio state. Um, Chase Young is as good at his job as anybody I've ever covered at Ohio state. So whether you're talking about the first round running backs, all the cornerbacks that they've had come through here that have been first rounders, the great linebackers that have been here. Um, Troy Smith went in the highest minute quarterback. I mean, Chase Young in who he is and what he does as a defensive end is as dominant as any Ohio state player I've covered since 2005. Dang. <laughs> And so, it is. And you know, Mike, it is. It's a long list of talented guys, but honestly, that's where he is. So is there one play that when you look back at it, you're like, yeah, this dude is different. Like, was there one play that maybe it was that first play that you saw? You're like, yeah, okay, that's – I got to watch this guy because I just don't know what I'm going to get. Um, I'm trying to think. I have a terrible memory on stuff like this. I mean, there is stuff – sometimes, and, and Mike, you know this when we go back, and we're rewatching games. Um, he's one of those guys where if you slow down game tape to frame by frame, um, you can see how he's getting off the line. And this happened with Miles too. I mean, the great defensive ends, they're moving before anybody else is moving. And so he has great anticipation and such great explosion um, that it's that kind of thing that I remember noticing that pretty early of like, man, this guy is already more physically talented than the guys he's facing. And he's more technically sound than the guy he's the guy he's facing, but he's also getting started faster because he's so smart about the snap count and so explosive with his fast twitch off the ball. I think that's the kind of stuff when I was like, okay, 
if you know he's giving himself a head start on everybody and then it's over so one question about ohio state while i got you and I, again i appreciate you coming on as you know because this is how we met i covered college football for a little over a decade this ohio state team seems like it might be on another level this year maybe that wisconsin game aside in the last week where does this ohio state team for you rank among the ones you've watched yeah no it's like hey, Hey, Doug, is everything about Ohio State the best it's ever been? Um, like, I'm, <laughs> so here's the thing, right? This, this class that Chase Young was a part of, this, he was in the 2017 recruiting class. That class was ranked number two in the country. The 2018 class that Ohio State got was ranked number two in the country. So we saw this coming. This is sort of like peak Urban Meyer recruiting. Um, the 2013 class that formed the heart of the 2014 national championship team that class with Joey Bosa and Ezekiel Elliott, although all those guys, that was number two in the country. So I have long compared this 2017 class with Chase Young to that 2013 class with Joey Bosa. And then you add in Justin Fields as a transfer quarterback. The only questions about this team were first-year head coach, first-year quarterback, and both Ryan Day and Justin Fields have answered those questions. Um, they are up there. They're probably more talented than the, than the 2016 that went wire to wire number one and lost the national title game. They probably got it together sooner than the 2014 team that did win the national championship. That 2014 team was ridiculously talented. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard to be more talented than, than them, but this team sort of was ready from day one where maybe that team wasn't. So they are as good as any Ohio State team I've covered. Um, and, and if they complete this somehow, and Clemson and LSU, that's not going to be easy. Uh, if they complete this, I think they'll be right up there with the greatest teams in Ohio State history. Well, Doug, you've got a busy December and potentially January ahead of you, man. I appreciate you taking a few minutes. And who knows, if the Lions end up with pick number two or three in the draft, we may chat again about Chase Young before it's all said and done. Yeah, no hesitation. If Whoever gets Chase Young is going to be happy. So I appreciate you having me on, Mike. Hey, anytime. Instead of questions this week in our last segment, just a few words on receiver Marvin Jones, who was placed on injured reserve Tuesday after hurting his ankle on the second-to-last play offensively against Minnesota. Considering how this year went, Jones might have had one of the best seasons of his career. He was on pace to come close to 1,000 yards, and that's without Matthew Stafford for five games. He had nine touchdowns coming close to his career high, and he produced even after Stafford went out after the Oakland game. Three of his touchdowns came with Jeff Driscoll and or David Blau throwing him the ball. He went over 40 yards at every game without Stafford except for one, Sunday against Minnesota, where he still had 38 yards on a day where the Lions barely had any offense at all. He had four touchdowns against the Vikings in October, and that's the second time in his career he's done that. That had him join elite company like Jerry Rice. At 29 years old, he was still incredibly productive, and now that kind of leaves the Lions with a decision to make. Both he and Kenny Galladay are entering contract years in 2020. Galladay should get paid a massive amount of money, whether it's sooner than later this offseason. But Jones has been an integral part of the offense, too, and should command a pretty good salary, although not quite Kenny Galladay money, because he's about to turn 30. If the Lions want to keep him, it might be wise to lock Marvin Jones up earlier than later, because even approaching 30, he's still been productive, and he's been a good mentor and foil for Galladay in the Lions' passing attack. Will Detroit do that? It's probably still too early to say, and 
obviously there's a lot of decisions that have to be made about the future of Bob Quinn and Matt Patricia before anything would get really locked in. But Jones has played his way into consideration for a medium-length deal to keep a productive passing offense intact. You can read my reporting guest tonight, Doug LeMaurice, at cleveland.com and follow him on Twitter at Doug LeMaurice. And you can also listen to his podcast, Buckeye Talk. You can follow Glover Quinn on Instagram at Glover Quinn. You can read me at ESPN.com and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Mike Rothstein, on Facebook at Michael Rothstein Journalist, and check out my travel blog at michaelrothstein.net. Thanks, as always, to Regents Field for hosting this podcast. Come on by to enjoy some great food, including some gluten-free options, drink specials, and check out the free ski ball and darts as well. You can also record a podcast of your very own here, too, just like me. Check out Regents Field or find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Regents Field. Episode 12 is wrapped. Thanks for listening. And since we've been around for a couple months now, let us know how we're doing. Rate, review, subscribe, all that fun stuff. Let us know who you'd like to hear from, what you'd like to hear about. Thanks to my producers, Matt Leach, Stephen Arkinall, and David Woodley, along with my designer, Samantha Holt. We're on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or anywhere else you choose to listen to your podcast. See you next week.